Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you would take your Bibles with me and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. This morning we will be in verses 19 through 25. And let me commend uh, the children as well. Uh, we've had the children in our service for the past few months. They've done a great job. So they've uh, persevered through my preaching and my long prayers. And uh, I don't mind uh, the... The noise sometimes that comes with that. It's a good thing to hear that noise. Good thing to hear children and their blessing from the Lord. And so uh, they've done a great job. So we're so thankful for them. So parents, don't, don't worry. Sit at ease. Uh, I even say that to my own wife. <laughs> and we're reminded this morning that we are here to contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. What a great privilege that is. There are many things that you could contend for in this world, but we're here to contend for the faith. The faith that comes to us from and through the Word of God. The faith that has been passed down to us through the teaching of the apostles. The faith that is so necessary and primary and of such great importance in our lives. Are you contending for the faith once for all? Maybe that goes with our theme from Galatians. Are you fighting for the gospel? We fight for the gospel because it is worth fighting for. Because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If such power comes through the gospel, then why wouldn't we fight for it? What else can change a sinner's heart? Nothing. I can't. You can't. But the gospel can. And I hope you never tire of hearing of the gospel. So would you stand with us as we read from Galatians 3, verses 19 through 25. At the end of verse 25, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. But let's read God's holy and precious word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. 
and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Where do you live? There are a variety of ways that we can answer that question. You could talk about our country. I live in the United States of America. You could talk about our state. I live in Illinois. You could go further to specify the city or the town or the village. I live in a village. I've never lived in a village before. Even more so, you could give your address. You could be more specific. You could describe the house that you live in. I live in this house. Where you live is part of who you are as a person. It's where you do much of your living, and it's where you do much of your dying. But there is a more important question that you must answer than where you live. And it's made more important by simply adding three simple words. So the question becomes this. Where do you live in the Bible? Where do you live in the Bible? Have you ever considered that question before? Maybe you would say, I don't live anywhere in the Bible because I don't even believe in the Bible. But I would make the statement that everyone lives somewhere in the Bible, even if you would say that you don't believe in the Bible. You still live somewhere in the Bible. To make it even simpler, maybe because the Lord knows that we are weak, there are only two places to live in the Bible. Do you know where they are? You can see pretty simply because there's two divisions in the Bible. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. 
So you either live in the Old Testament or you live in the New Testament, or we could say it other ways. You either live following Moses or following Jesus. You either live under the law or you live in Christ. So where do you live in the Bible? Are you condemned by the law or are you free and alive in Christ? But I wonder if right there a trap has been laid for us, a trap that we are unaware of, a trap that we do not suspect, a trap that we don't even see. Because my guess is that as Christians, we often separate these two places and split them in such a way that we would say, I live in the New Testament. I am a New Testament Christian. And I think there is a tragedy in that. Because... We can't have one without the other. Some would want to go straight to Jesus without meeting Moses. You would go over or you would skip over the condemnation of the law and go straight to justification that is found in Christ Jesus. And this is a disastrous problem in the church. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want to talk about wrath. And we certainly don't want to talk about condemnation. But we as a church cannot and must not deny the spiritual pilgrimage that we have been on. From the law to Jesus Christ. So we have the whole Bible. Because this is where we've come from. This is where we have arrived. So we must not skip over Moses. We must have met him. We must know and feel the burden and weight of sin. And this is really the way to know the glory of Jesus Christ. If you are to skip over that, you would short-circuit the glory of Christ. Not that you can take away from his glory. No one can do that. But his greater glory is then hidden and veiled from your eyes. You have a small Jesus, but that's not Jesus. Jesus is big and Jesus is glorious. Others, however, never get past Moses. They stay bound by the law. They stay under condemnation of the law. They are yoked and burdened by the law. They are imprisoned and they've never been set free by Jesus Christ. And I believe it is those who have only known the law. They have never known the promise of God. They don't know Christ. They could be very religious or they could be very irreligious. They could be very good people or they could be very bad people, but they remain under the law. And how disastrous is that? That they remain in the blindness of their unbelief. They remain in their death. They've never been brought to life. They've never come to life to know Jesus. And it's those who are in that category of the perishing. Is your heart burdened for those that would be called the perishing? I hope you live 
in the New Testament, but I hope that you've met Moses on your way to Jesus. And maybe that's something that you would need to search your heart today and say, have I met Moses? Do I know the law? Do I know the purpose of the law? Why it's there? Why God gave it? That's what Paul is saying here in our verses this morning. There is a purpose of the law. Paul has been contrasting the promise of God and the law of God. He's just told us about the permanence of the promise of God. And now he focuses on the purpose of the law. And this is not a clear-cut dichotomy. This is not promise good, law bad. Paul is not arguing that. He is saying that each have their own function. Each have their own purpose. So the promise of God has its purpose and the law of God rightly has its own purpose as well. And you need to know that purpose, he says Galatians. And so I think then to us as well. Christians, you need to know the purpose of the law. God has specifically designed each for a reason. And we need to understand the purpose of the law because it's understanding the purpose of the law that we get the gospel right. So if we don't get the law right, we're in danger then of not getting the gospel right. That's why this is important. That's why Paul belabors this point because you need to know the purpose of the law because you need to know the gospel. In fact, the Puritans would start this way. They would start with the law and they would say, here is the law. Here is what you need to know about the law. They would prime their people on knowing the law so that then they could come in with the glorious gospel and the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. Why don't we do that? Why don't we start with the law? I mean, we talk often about the gospel. We need to know the gospel. We need to know what it is. We need to know how to proclaim it and exclaim it. But do we ever say we need to know the purpose of the law? Do we ever need to say, that's what people need to know first so then they can know just how glorious and great Jesus Christ is? It's the law has implications on your life, dear Christian, and you need to have met those. You need to know those. And these truths that flow from the law are vital for your life. So let's look at the purpose of the law this morning in three ways. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. But number one, the law makes you see the increasing problem of sin. The law makes you see the increasing problem of sin. Paul here begins with a few questions, doesn't he? Why the law? What's its purpose? He says, Before this, you cannot secure the inheritance through keeping the law. So why is the law there? Why the law then? There must be some good reason, and look at what Paul says. It was added because of transgressions. So it was added. It came after the promise. It was added in such a way not to make the promise better like the promise was lacking, but it had another purpose, another function. It came in succession. It was not primary, like the covenant that God had made with Abraham, but it came after because of transgressions. And notice that it was added. Think about that. Who added it? 
who brought it about. It wasn't added in a vacuum. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. No, God added it. It was by his divine action to add it. So that is why we would say this, God gave the law. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. How do you know sin? How do you have a knowledge of sin? Comes through the law, Paul says. But notice that word here. It was added because of transgressions. That's not a word that we often use. It's not often in our vocabulary, is it? When was the last time you were talking to a friend and said the word transgressions? They might have looked at you cockeyed, right? But it highlights sin and emphasizes something. It emphasizes how we have transgressed and broken God's law. He has set it up, his good and perfect design for how we are to live in this world as human beings. He has put loving parameters and safeguards to show his care and concern. He has shown us how he has designed life to be lived, but we have transgressed against him. It shows the personal nature of our sin. We have transgressed not merely the law of God, but we have transgressed against God himself. It is not just merely that we care nothing for the law that he set in place. It's that we have rejected him. We have despised him. We have forsaken him. He who is the creator of the universe. He who coordinates your life. The breath that you're breathing at this moment. The organs that are in your body that are working in conjunction with one another to keep you alive. He who put everything into this world that you need to survive and to live. He, the true giver of all things, the same one who hung the stars in the sky, the same one who holds all things together, the same one who is sovereign over all things. Look at your life. Look at all that you've been given. Look at all that's come from his gracious hand to you. Yet we have transgressed him. But we go on to say that God not only gave the law, but that God gave his law for a particular reason. I believe as we look at these words, it was added because of transgressions. Paul is saying it was added to increase transgressions. Is that what we would think? Is that why, is that why you give uh, instructions to your children? But I think that's what Paul is saying here. We naturally would think, why would God give the law to increase transgressions? Doesn't God want to curb transgressions? Doesn't God want to restrain, uh, restrain sin? Why would God give something that would actually increase transgressions and so then increase sin? One reason why I don't believe that Paul is saying that the law was added to restrain sin is that would play into the hands of the Galatians and what they were advocating. That is what these people were saying to Galatians. Galatians, you need more law because more law, you will restrain more of your sin. Then you will be good Christians. Then you will be Abraham's sons. Go back, go back to the law. Go back and circumcise yourself and keep the law. Then you will secure your salvation and you will restrain your sin. 
So I don't think that Paul says that God added the law to restrain sin, but I believe it was added to increase sin, just as it says in Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. And think about that argument in light of the rest of the Old Testament for a moment. After the law was given, what happened? Was sin restrained in Israel? Did it keep Israel from sinning? No, sin and transgression abounded all the more. The law didn't stop sin. In fact, you don't, can't even get away from Mount Sinai before you have all of this sin and transgression abounding. And what happens when you read the rest of the history of Israel? You see sin reign. You see transgression increase. You see the absolute control of sin that so grips the nation that they're finally led away into exile because of their transgressions. Read the book of Judges. You get to the end of the book of Judges, you know what you have at the end of the book of Judges? You have a nation that's supposed to be God's people who are living like Sodom and Gomorrah. Read the book of Kings. Read the book of Jeremiah and how Jeremiah describes the Israelites as these lusty stallions neighing after their neighbors. So, so what? Why would God add the sin to increase transgression? Or why would God add the law to increase transgression? Because the law can't answer the problem of sin in your life. And what's more, not only can the law not answer your problem of transgression, it also tells us that we cannot be the solution to our problem either. God adds the law on account of transgression and increases transgression. And there is nothing that you can do to stop it. And how foolishly man tries. Man would like to stop it. We know the answer. We can correct it. But what happens? What happens when we foolishly try to fix the problem? We only increase more transgression. We only bring about more sin. The law can never take away sin. It only ever increases sin. It only ever escalates the, es- escalates the problem. And it can and never will have the power or the ability to answer the problem of transgression. If you're looking to the law, if you're looking at all that you've done, or if you're looking at all that you haven't done, To be the answer of your problem, you will only ever be driven to despair and discouragement and death. But it's before this dark and gloomy backdrop that Paul immediately brings in the brightness of the glorious gospel and how brightly it shines because it's right here that the answer to our problem comes flooding into our hearts and minds. The offspring of Abraham the one to whom the promise of salvation was made, the Messiah. He is the answer to the problem of sin. He is the answer to the power of sin. He is the answer to the increasing of transgression. He is the answer to the depth of human sinfulness, our sinfulness, 
It is the great redemption accomplished by Christ that shines out with hope in our hearts that the greatness of our transgression can and will be overcome by Him. What power is greater than the increasing power of sin and transgression that dominates us, that dominates the whole human race? It's the power of God through Jesus Christ to deal with transgressions once and for all so that the power and strength and grip of sin that was once crushing us is removed and we're given the salvation that comes from God. Listen to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read through a few verses here. First, verse 5 in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 8 of Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living Stricken for what? For the transgression of my people. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with who? With the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession now for who? For the transgressors. Here is the one pierced, stricken for our transgressions, who was numbered with us, yet he bore our sin in his body on that tree to make intercession so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and be brought to God himself. Paul goes on after this good news to talk again about the law, the law that was put into place What he says here, if you look at these verses, was put in place through angels by the hands of an intermediary. Paul here is saying that there were angels who played a part in bringing this law from God to man. So we could go to other places in the New Testament to support this thought, like Acts 7.38 says this, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. Or Acts 7.53, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Or Hebrews 2.2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Or even one verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 33.2, he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from, here it is, the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So there's this biblical evidence that angels had a part in delivering God's law, delivering it to Moses, who I would say is this intermediary or mediator. Why would I say that this is Moses? Moses was never called a mediator in the Old Testament, but here is a clue, and unfortunately you can't see this in the ESV, But it says this, the law was put into place through angels by the hands of an intermediary. And I think those words, by the hands of an intermediary, are important. Because I think that's exactly what we read in the Old Testament. So listen to the book of Exodus. 
Exodus 32, 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Exodus 32, 19. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Exodus 34, 4. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Or finally, Exodus 34, 29. So Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain. So I think when Paul says that it came to us by the hand of an intermediary, he is saying, look, Moses had the law in his hand. Moses is that intermediary. So the law was given from God through angels by the hand of a mediator who is Moses until it finally reaches the people of Israel. So why all of this? Why is this important? Why this piece of information? He's setting up verse 20. Because a mediator or an intermediary implies more than one. So a mediator, there's two parties. So with the law, you have Israel and you have God. Two parties. But he says this. He sets up a contrast. But God is one. Why does Paul make this statement? Why is Paul emphasizing this? He is showing the superiority of the covenant with Abraham to the covenant that was made with Israel. With the covenant of Israel, two parties each had a part to play. Each had a responsibility. God had a responsibility, and the people of Israel had a responsibility. But remember, think back to the covenant of Abraham. Remember from last week what happened there. These animals are cut in half. There's a bloody pathway that's made between them. And then what? Abraham falls asleep and God walks through, as it were, between those animals saying what? It's all dependent upon me. Abraham, it's not dependent upon you. You're sleeping. I'm going to fulfill it all from beginning to end. Depend upon me. It's dependent upon me. I am going to do the work. There is only one way of salvation, and it's through God and His work and His work alone. And that's the way we know for certain that it will be fulfilled. Because it's not dependent upon us. If it were dependent upon us, woe is us, because we're going to fail. I'm going to fail. But if it all depends upon God, it's certain it will be done. It will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. There's nothing for me to do. Praise God. Why does Paul emphasize the oneness of God here? I think to encourage the Galatians, saying, Galatians, there's only one way to be saved. Jew, Gentile, there's only one way to be saved. And it's through this one true and living God. Number two this morning. We might not get to number three. We'll try to get through number two. Number two. The law makes you run to Christ for life. The law makes you run to Christ for life. We are brought to the second question. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Does then the law actually work against the promises of God? 
there are some who might want to say that the law is opposed to the gospel. But that's not what Paul says. Because that's the question. Is the law opposed to the gospel? What is Paul's answer? Certainly not. Absolutely no. No, no, a thousand times low. The law is not uh, opposed to the gospel. The law is not contrary to the gospel. It would be if the law could give life. But the law can't give life. It was not designed to give life. And how many people err right here? They think that the law will give them life. They think that the law will set them free. They think that the law will change them or do something for them that will get them into God's favor. They believe that they could achieve righteousness by the law. But Paul says here, that's not the case. Do not be suckered into thinking this. How do law and promise, law and gospel go together? Paul goes on to talk about the scripture. Notice here what he does. So he's been talking about law, 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 and then he says scripture. It's like he zooms out to something bigger than even just the law. He's saying scripture. And I believe he's using scripture here to personify God's will. He's saying this. It was God's will through the scripture to imprison everything under sin. This is the condition of mankind. We are under sin. We are controlled by sin. We are dominated by sin. We are imprisoned by sin. And how unable we are to free ourselves from sin. We rightly feel the weight of this and know that there is no way to rescue ourselves but that we are actually in need of rescue. And everything being imprisoned under sin was done for a purpose. And here it is. It was to convince people, it was to convince people like you and like me of our need of salvation. Paul highlights that this salvation is done by faith alone. How does he do this? First he talks about the promise that is given to those who do what? Who believe. So how do you get the promise? You believe. It's, our, it's, it's, it's upon us to believe. We are called to believe. The promise does not come to those who do not believe. They do not receive the promise of salvation. They do not receive the promise of blessing. They do not receive the promise of inheritance. It only comes to those who believe. That's why we call ourselves believers. But the faith spoken of here also has another emphasis. You see it. So the promises are received by those who believe and the promises are received by those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So now the emphasis is on the object of our faith. And who is that? It's no one other than Jesus Christ and him alone. This is what the law does. It drives people to the promise. It says that you are under the dominion of sin and there is no way out. And the law is meant to convict you and drive you to Jesus Christ. The law makes you run, as it were, to Jesus Christ for life. There is no life in the law. The the law can't give life. The law cannot resurrect you from the dead. The law can't give you hope beyond the grave. Only Jesus gives life. Only Jesus resurrects you from the dead. Only Jesus gives you hope beyond the grave. Only Jesus makes it possible for the promise of God to flood into your life and give you eternal security. 
Do you appreciate the gospel? Why do you appreciate it? You will never appropriately appreciate it unless the law has revealed yourself to you and laid you out bare before God as one who was under the control and dominion of sin. The law is meant to crush your pride. The law is meant to condemn you. The law is meant to show that you are utterly hopeless in and of yourself, but that is where Christ comes in. How do you know if the law has had the proper effect in your life? Is there conviction of sin? Is there contrition in your heart? And it's easy to say, it's easy to say that, but it's another thing to prove it because I don't know your heart. Has the strong hammer of the law fallen upon your heart and smashed it to pieces or has it been met with cold, hard steel? How do you know what's taken place in your life? How do you know if your heart's been crushed to pieces or if it's met cold, hard steel? Well, have you ever muttered the words, I can't? But when you know those words, I can't, you don't merely mutter them. You exclaim them in desperation, I can't, I can't save myself, I can't do it, I can't work my way out of my problem. You say those words with all the desperation that your soul can muster and you call out to Christ to rescue you. You call out to Christ to save you. You call out to him because you know that you can never do it on your own. You have nothing of yourself to do it. You run to the cross, you run to Christ, and so you are saved. Has the law humbled you? Has it crushed your heart? Has it brought you to the point where you see that you are condemned because of your sin and transgression? Then run to Jesus Christ. It's only there. It's only there that you will know hope and salvation and grace and peace and everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the law. Thank you for the law that makes us run to Jesus Christ. Thank you for the law that tells us we can't. We can't do it on our own. Thank you for the law that condemns us, shows us our desperate need. Thank you for the law that shows us our complete and utter inability to save ourselves and forgive us for the times when we think that we could forgive us for the times when we think we have something in us when we are enough and we're not relying upon Christ as we should be we haven't we're not running to Christ as we should be running to Christ father let the hard hammer of the law crush us crush all of our pride And give us humility as those convicted of our sins, as those repentant, 
as those who are fully resting in Jesus. Father, if there's someone here today who is not, I pray that now they would. They would call out to you. They would realize the depth of their sin. And they would run to Jesus Christ. Put their faith and trust in him. And find hope in life and in death. And know amazing, amazing love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.